Let me pray. Heavenly Father, would you reveal yourself to us now? Would you leap from the pages that we've just read and would you encounter us by your Spirit, with the power of your Spirit, and would we be taken over by your love? In Jesus' name, Amen. We left it all behind and now he's pressing on. I press on, I press on. He says it twice there in verses 12 and 14. Why does he press on? What's he pressing on to? What's his goal? Well, taken on their own, those verses, verse 12 and 14, are are quite passionate, but it's a little ambiguous to what he's actually pressing on to. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this, but I press on to obtain it. What's the this and the it that he's speaking of here? What's his goal? Paul has a goal. And in fact, we, we all have goals. There are things in our life, things, clear goals, articulated ones that we're, we're very determined to seek. And, and perhaps there are unarticulated goals, things that we haven't spoken that we are still quite keen on pursuing. What goals are you trying to obtain? Because the Apostle Paul here is struggling. He's pressing on. He's pressing on towards the goal. And we're not dissimilar to him. We do it all the time. We're all struggling. Uh, perhaps modern words we're hustling for something. A better life-work balance, perhaps. A healthier life. To rid ourselves of perhaps a destructive habit where often focused on career goals, things that we want to achieve in our careers and perhaps even in our families, the kind of people that we want to be to those whom we love. And we know that those goals, whatever they are, here's one thing that everyone agrees on. They don't come easily. And they didn't come easily for the Apostle Paul. So what is this goal? that the Apostle Paul is struggling for? Well, in order to ask, answer that question, we have to go back to the section that we had a look at last week. So if you've got a Bible, I can just open up to chapter 3 of the book of Philippians. Because last week we saw the Apostle Paul laid out his resume. He laid out his CV. And he says that, you know, according to his peers and the culture of, of the culture in that time, in that day, he had kicked all the goals. He kicked all the professional, cultural, religious goals of his community. His resume was impeccable and enviable. And yet we saw last week that he he throws that all away. He, he, He chucks it away and he's not trying to recycle it, to redeem it as sometimes we do as Christians, like to, to take something of culture and redeem it with a Christian spin on it. Oh, I'm going to do Halloween, but I'm going to do it as a Christian. No, that's not his approach here. His approach to his former life, everything that he had achieved professionally, in religious and cultural terms, he chucks it away. He totally rejects it. It's it's in fact repulsive to him now. Why? Because he knows the Lord Jesus. And now... Because he knows the Lord Jesus, he wants to be found in him. Verse 10 there, I want to know Christ. 
and to know the power of his resurrection and to participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. What's Paul's goal? What is he striving towards? Well, it's obvious there in verse 10 and 11. It's to become like Jesus. It's to know him, to imitate him, to, to walk in his shoes. Not just to get the benefits of what Jesus has done, but to be like him. To be like him in his suffering, to tread out those powers of suffering with the expectation that what happened to the Lord Jesus as he was raised from the dead will also happen to him. And he, uh, and he, can't, he can't quite conceive that. He's certain that it will happen. I think that's why he uses the word, you know, somehow obtaining the resurrection of the dead. He's certain it will happen, but it doesn't feel like right now it will happen. He's in prison. He's suffering. But he's looking forward to being raised as the Lord Jesus has been raised. That's Paul's goal. The resurrection is the light at the end of the tunnel. Being raised to be like him. Right now, he's like Jesus in his suffering. But the goal is not suffering. As good as suffering might be to refine us as Christian people, it is not our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is the resurrection, where there is no pain, there is no suffering, there are no tears. And he wants to obtain this resurrection. And this resurrection of the Apostle Paul is not merely the reversal of being dead. It's not like, yeah, he'll die one day and then one day he'll become alive again. That's not the obtaining of the resurrection that Paul has in mind here. It is that. It is the fact that one day he will die and one day he will be raised again to life. But that's not all Paul has in mind. When he thinks of the resurrection, obtaining the resurrection, he's thinking of perfection. He's thinking of not just him being perfect, but the world being perfect. The fact that one day he will know perfectly that he is loved perfectly. And he will be known and He will be perfect in being known. And isn't that what we all want? Isn't that what we all want, really, as people? Don't we all want to be known fully and yet to be fully loved? That's what I long for. Where there's not parts of myself that I think that I have to hide. But I can be loved. I can be loved properly and fully and totally for who I am. And that ultimately, that ultimately will happen in the resurrection. And all who trust in the Lord Jesus will be loved and will be known perfectly. Perfectly. And so in that sense, what we're all struggling for, I think, is the resurrection. We all want that reality. Whether we're Christian or not, we all want a kind of salvation. There was a book called, written a couple of years ago called God is Not One, Eight Rival Religions That Run the World. And the author, a man called Stephen Prothero, argues, he's a religious scholar, and in it he argues that actually, you know, a lot of people say all religions are the same. That's not actually true. Uh, 
he looks at the eight major world religions and he sees that there's actually a fascinating myriad of difference between all of the religions. But he says that they all have, whatever religion it is, they all have this in common. He says that the two commonalities within the eight major world religions are this, that as they look around the world, they conclude, everyone in those religions conclude that there is something wrong with the world. That's the first conclusion. Secondly, he says, as they look at themselves, they also conclude that there's not just something wrong with the world, there's something wrong with me. And so, based on whatever you think is wrong with the world, and whatever you think is wrong with you, what these religions come up with is a salvation strategy, what he calls a salvation strategy. And, and, and he maps them out in this book, all kind of different ones, but all have a salvation strategy. And in fact, we might add that you don't actually have to be religious to have a salvation strategy. Because many religious people know that A, many people who aren't religious know A, there's something wrong with the world, and B, if they're honest with themselves, there's something wrong with us. And so you don't have to be religious to have a salvation strategy. And so many who aren't religious have salvation strategies, things to improve the world, things that they do to improve themselves. So whether you're religious or not, we're all part of a, in one sense, a salvation strategy. We're all looking for salvation. But the Apostle Paul believes here that there is only one way to have salvation. And that is through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And this is his one goal. To be like Jesus in his res resurrection, to be in that state of perfection, not just moral perfection, it is moral perfection, but not just that, a perfected world that he exists in. And this is not just Paul's personal goal. Have a look there in verse 15. He says, all of us then, who are mature, should take a view of such things. The Apostle Paul is calling us like him to have this goal. And so I want to ask two questions this morning. The first question I want to ask is, why do we press on towards this goal? That's the first question. The second question I want to ask is, how? How do we press on towards this goal? So firstly, why do we press on towards this goal? Well, the first reason is pretty simple, because we haven't arrived. We haven't obtained perfection. Now, that, that might seem pretty, pretty obvious, particularly as you look at other people, uh, you know, more than obvious that they haven't obtained perfection. But for some reason, the Apostle Paul says it twice. So I think it's important thing. He says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained it, or verse 13, or I haven't made it. So Paul's quite clear, quite clear to the Philippian church, the, one, the church that he's started, this great apostle, he's not there yet. He's not there yet. And Paul wants the Philippians to know that. Jesus said that it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. And he's not come to call the righteous, but he's come to call sinners. So this is important for us to think about. But what is the difference between, as you look out to the world, a Christian person, perhaps a very committed Christian person, what is the difference that you see as you look out into the world? Is it 
your sin, that you are kind of just slightly better than most people you come across? Or is it your saving? Apostle Paul, as he looked at himself, and as he knew himself, he was realistic. He knew that for all his accomplishments, for all his spiritual accomplishments, many of which were just absolutely astounding, he knew that he wasn't there yet. He wasn't there yet. He could not make the claim that he had arrived, and if he can't make the claim that he had arrived, then I don't think we can either. James chapter 3 says that we stumble in many ways. And this is a great thing. This should make us humble. This is a relief. Perfection is for when Jesus raises us from the dead. That's our goal, but we want, we're not reaching it yet. And so this can make us humble, I think. This can relieve us of that burden of trying to be perfect. Because we're fallible. And if we know that we're fallible, well, we're open to correction. And if we know that we're fallible, we're also open to learn. We're actually teachable. And if we know that we're fallible and we haven't reached it yet, it means that when someone does correct us, we're not defensive because we know we haven't arrived. And God is using whatever means that he might use to bring us into the likeness of the Lord Jesus. So, firstly, why do we press on towards the goal? Well, we haven't arrived. Secondly, why do we press on towards the goal? Well, we press on towards this goal because it, it should make us tenacious. Have a look there in verse 13. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. There is a tenacity here in Paul's mind. There in verse 13, he, he's straining. And, and the image here is of an athlete. And that athlete kind of pushing through the resistance. The resistance perhaps of his muscles or her muscles fatiguing. The resistance of the strain. This is the image that Paul has. And he's saying this is what the Christian life is like. It's, it's to push forward, straining. And friends, the Christian life is not easy. It is a strain. And in fact, there are many stresses and there is lots of resistance. Resistance from within ourselves and our own sin. Resistance from others and their sin and the world and the schemes of the devil. We're pushing it up. We're pushing against it, sorry. We're pushing it. It can feel like we're pushing it uphill. But there is a tenacity here in Paul's mind. Um, and that the word straining there is um, connected to the word that he used for once persecuting the church. That energy that he had when he was on that road to Damascus, he's saying that energy has been redirected, not to persecute Christians, but to pursue Christ. And so it's important that we as Christian people take stock of where we're at. And we ask ourselves, are we continuing to grow as Christian people? Are we straining? Have we got that goal in mind? Are we continuing to grow in our emotional health, in our relationships with others? Are we continuing to grow in our stewardship of our body, 
and our rest? Are we growing as a husband and as a wife, as a friend? Are we growing in Christian virtues, virtues of courage? What fears do we have in our life? It's important that we take stock of these things. But, I don't know about you, but sometimes that just seems overwhelming. And I wonder if one of the reasons why it seems overwhelming is that because we're pursuing with our hearts so many things. So many things in our life. So many demands of our life. So many things that cloud our mind. And the Apostle Paul here is calling us to a clarity and a single-mindedness. The devotion of an athlete for their training program. He says there in verse 13, this one thing I do. I love those words. Because perhaps you like me, you feel like there's so many things to do. And they're all overwhelming. But there's only one thing that the Apostle Paul is calling us to do. It's to focus on Christ. And yes, those other things are all important. But where to focus on Christ? I press on towards the God to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This call is the prize that awaits him at the end of the race. And the Apostle Paul here is visualising that, that podium. I went to watch one of my kids at um, you know, the Olympic site um, in an athletics carnival and, and actually have the, the podium that they use during the Olympics. And, um, you know, it's something special about seeing that podium and kid on it. And hear the Apostle Paul. He has in mind that podium. And he has in mind this, this call, this call, because this heavenly judge at the end of all time, at the end of the race, is calling him, he's calling him to come up, to come up and receive this prize. Receive this prize not because he's strained towards the prize, they receive the prize. The fact that the judge is going to give him the prize, that means that he can strain towards the prize. It gives him a tenacity. So firstly, he knows he hasn't arrived. Secondly, it gives him a tenacity, a discipline, a focus. But thirdly, he knows that he's been taken over. Why do we press on? Because we have been taken over. We've been invaded, verse 12. Have a look there. These are important verses. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. We're straining. We're pressing on. There's resistance from the world, from ourselves. But we're pressing on as Christian people, not because we're wondering, will God accept me? And if only I could strain hard enough, then he would, then he will. That we're pressing on because verse 12, Jesus took hold of me. He presses on to seize it because he's been seized. He presses on to own it because he has been owned. Sometimes, um, you know, you're at a party and people ask you what you do and sometimes people ask me what I do and I say I'm a minister. And, and often people ask me, you know, how did you get into that? And I, I can tell them about the process in my mind and and things that I went through and all the kind of stages and that kind of thing. But I, I didn't really get into this because I, I made you know, a perfect decision 
think I got into this because the Lord Jesus chose me. And yes, you know, come and study the Bible, but in the reality of the gospel, it's far more important that the Lord Jesus has studied me, that he knows me, and all the things that I might know about him. He threw me here, and this is where I am. He has obtained me. And so we press on. We press on, verse 12, because we're owned. We press on because we're called. And it's a great reminder for us this morning that Christianity is not about us. It's not something that you take on. And perhaps there are, you know, kind of remarkable circumstances towards becoming a Christian. Perhaps you didn't grow up in a Christian family. I know there are quite a number of people who didn't come from Christian families, didn't come from cultures that have been dominated throughout history by Christianity. They see, Christianity is not something that we master. God masters us. This is the dynamic of the Christian life. If you trust in the Lord Jesus, if you have come even from remarkable background, from an unlikely background, it's not simply the product of your decision, the product of your mind, to be able to see through all what's true and what's false. That's not how you become a Christian. There are truths that we must own and claim. But we can only do this, and it's only possible because we have first been claimed. This is important because as we walk out those doors, there are a million different strategies out there. People and marketing and ads trying to convince us. There's a whole industry of trying to convince us that we need to improve ourselves, that we need to improve ourselves you know, with a better diet, with more exercise, through meditation, with surgery, perhaps. And as good as all those things are, where do they all start? They all start with us and our decision to improve ourselves, to become a little bit better. Well, I want to let you know this morning, Christianity is not a spiritual self-improvement program. It's not just like something else out there, but it's the spiritual version of it. Christianity is God's claim on our lives. And this is wonderfully humbling again because we didn't become Christian because of our choice. Well, not primarily. It was chosen out of love in the mind of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we can't look down on any other person who is not Christian. And it's not only humbling, it's encouraging. Because there are for us, for some of us, darker seasons of faith. There are hard times that we go to. And there are hard times that we go to where our faith is just so vital and such an important part of strengthening us through hardship. But there are times in which perhaps you imagine yourself without Christian faith. Perhaps it's a little too hard, too much. Too heavy. And I've got to admit, there have been times like that where I've imagined myself, you know, what would life be like if I wasn't a Christian? Would it in fact be any easier? But as I've found myself and caught myself imagining life without Christ, 
The reality of the resurrection is just too real and too powerful for me to walk away from. And the fact that the Lord Jesus chose me, and because he chose me, he has me. Even in my wanderings, it means I can keep pressing on. And so when we're in those moments, that energy, that kind of anxious, fearful energy that often we use to run away from Jesus, we're wasting our time. Because God has us. He's chosen us and he will take us home. And I don't know if you've been at the airport, but see those kids sometimes at the airport and they've got those backpacks on with a harness. Uh, it's not a leash. It's a harness. That's for their safety. It looks like a leash because the parents are always pulling them back. Kids, toddlers running off. The parents are pulling them back. That's like us. Um, sometimes we can use our energy to run away. Nervous, fearful, anxious energy. But this morning, friends, I want to remind you that because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus, because he chose you before the beginning of time, because he's committed himself to you through his death and he's taking you home to the resurrection, turn that restless energy back to him because he won't let you go. So firstly, we've seen this morning that we are to press on why we are to press on towards this goal. But secondly, I want to finish off just three quick points on how we are to press on. How are we to press on? Well, verse 16 tells us, verse 17 tells us we're joined together, we're to join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have obtained us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. How are we to press on? Well, firstly, we're to join Paul in imitation. Uh, the dominant model of Western education is that we learn something in theory and then we do it in practice. That's why we spend like 12 or 13 years at school before we actually do something in work. That's the dominant model of Western education. It has great strengths. But that's not what Paul has in mind here. And we know that this doesn't work for a lot of fields, for sports, or for farming, or for cooking. Um, some fields in life, and some occupations, you don't master by just learning the theory and then trying to do it yourself. Um, you know, you watch MasterChef, when they want to grow as a chef, you know, they're keen to work under a master, to learn, to watch that master cook. And this is what the Apostle Paul has in mind. It's one of imitation. It's one of mentorship. We press on by imitating. And what are we to imitate? Well, we're to imitate the Apostle Paul here. His life. And we're in to imitate him as one, firstly, who forgets what lies behind. And strains to what's ahead. He is the one who counted all his achievements all the things that his family would have been so proud of. He, compared, he, he counts them as rubbish now compared to knowing Christ. He has this one God, and we're to press on like Paul. And so we're not to use yesterday's deposits for today's task. Because sometimes we do that as Christians. 
You know, like the person who was um, a kid um, who was captain of the under 11 G's for one day at school. You know, it, it's, the, it's the thing that kind of they hold on to in their past. That, that moment of glory, being the captain of the under 11 G's. The thing is, many of us do that spiritually. We bank on our past experiences of God. The past churches that we've been to, those times of wonderful fruitfulness, those times of being with God. But the Apostle Paul is cautioning us here to forget what lies behind him. The Apostle Paul is primarily talking about his former life here, but I think it's true for us. We might have been Christian all our lives, and God might have used us powerfully, and there might have been great Moments of faithfulness in our lives. And that is wonderful. Praise be to God. But each new day is a day to strain towards God. Secondly, we're to imitate Paul as he imitates Jesus. The Apostle Paul is looking to the Lord Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, we're to be imitators of him as he imitates Christ. The Apostle Paul imitates Christ in his humility. And so we're to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. And thirdly, we're to do this in the context of community. There in verse 17, you see the plural language. You have us as a model. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Friends, you can't imitate the Lord Jesus outside of Christian community. A community of fellow imitators. A community of people who are struggling, who are pressing, who feel that resistance with you. When you feel that resistance outside of Christian faith, of Christian community, you know what often happens? You often feel like you're the only one who's struggling. You're the only one who's pushing up against it. But to be part of a Christian community, you know that this is normal. This is the normal part of Christian life. So we're not perfect. And Yet, we had to press on. I want to finish with these words of John Newton, the slave trader turned abolitionist, the man who wrote that great hymn, Amazing Grace, that man who, when he spoke of being wretched, it was no mere understatement. He thought about how God was working in his life, about that goal that he had, about the reality that he was not perfect, and he said these words. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I used to be. And by God's grace, I am what I am. Amen. Please stand as we sing.